like to have, if you would, turn to John chapter 16 this morning, and we will look at the last half of this chapter together, beginning in verse 16 and going through verse uh, 33. So make your way to John chapter 16, and we'll study the second half of this chapter this morning with you. I want to do something a bit unusual, that is, I would like to begin at the end of this passage begin with verse 33 because that lets us know where Jesus is heading in this entire section and that will enable us to understand the previous things he's been saying in in his flow of thought here. Uh, This is what my wife does, by the way. When she reads and picks up a novel, she will read the last chapter first and then if she likes the way it turns out, she'll go back and read the rest of the book. Now, I don't understand that myself. But let's read verse 33, and if we like verse 33, we'll go back and read the rest. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Now notice the contrast here that Jesus draws. In me, he says, you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Now, the word tribulation is one of these real good Bible words that nobody ever uses in normal uh, speech. And so we kind of have to decode this to understand what Jesus is talking about. The word literally uh, means pressure. So what Jesus is saying to us is that in the world you have pressure. Things that put pressure on you that, that stress you out. And notice he says you have these things. That's present tense. That means ongoing as a characteristic fact of life, you can expect life to consist of one episode of pressure or stress after another. That's a fact of life, as Jesus tells us. Now, this comes in many forms, uh, some of them a bit humorous. I was reading in Time magazine this last week that in Austria, the uh, union of uh, retail clerks is up in arms right now because uh, the having to listen to 12 hours a day of Christmas carols is driving them nuts. And they say, we can only take so much jingle bells. So they are lobbying all of the owners of retail shops there to cut back on the number of uh, Christmas carols. The head of the union says this is a clear case of psychoterror. In the world, you have tribulation. Those of you that are parents of young children have discovered, I'm sure as we have, that the Uh, that fathers and mothers differ in the amount of unsupervised activity they uh, permit. A week ago, uh, Debbie was having breakfast with some friends, and I was in charge of our two uh, young kids. And uh, things were great. They were watching cartoons, and I was reading USA Today and eating donuts. And this was great. But they got tired of watching cartoons, and they decided they wanted to play in the sink in the kitchen, which Debbie lets them do. And so I thought, this is terrific. She's told me this will entertain them for hours. So I filled up both halves of the sink, and they had their little G.I. Joe guys and horses and so forth, and uh, they were playing uh, contentedly, and I thought everything was under control. And I was uh, reading about the 49ers in USA Today and sipping my coffee, and Debbie got home. And I hadn't been in the kitchen since we had started this procedure, and so Debbie, <laughs> Debbie comes home and finds her kitchen under two inches of water, and it looked like the demilitarized zone in there. Well, what does that produce for a young mother? That produces stress. That's pressure. But uh, this pressure uh, comes in those sort of milder forms, but it also comes in far more intense forms, uh, uh, severe marital stress or financial pressure, 
health problems that are debilitating and uh, depressing. And Jesus says this is a fact of life. This is a realistic assessment of life that in the world you have tribulation. Now Jesus tells us in verse 33 that he has resources to respond to that, to make us able to cope with that pressure. Two of them, he says, and they're only in me. We only have these if we are in connection with him, if we are drawing upon his indwelling life, then we have these two assets. First of all, he says, in me you have peace. That is a sense of poise or calm, a sense of confidence, uh, a uh, sense of stability in the face of these pressures. Many of you have probably been to Magic Mountain north of uh, Los Angeles Amusement Park there. They've got a tall observation tower, several hundred feet high. And that's earthquake country, and this tower has been built to withstand earthquakes. And the way they've done this is to build into the structure a uh, 14-foot sway factor. So that if you happen to be at the top of this observation deck when an earthquake hit, you would sway seven feet to the left and seven feet to the right. But it wouldn't collapse. It would be able to withstand that sort of tremor. That's what Jesus offers to us. In me, he says, you can have that kind of stability when uh, the tremors hit. You can be stable and at peace in those situations. An inner calm, tranquility in the face of those pressures. Secondly, Jesus says you can take courage in the face of pressure. Literally, it means to be cheerful, that there is a basis because of our connection with Him to face these pressures with uh, cheerfulness, with uh, optimism, with a sense of anticipation, and a sense of hope. So Jesus provides for us peace for the anxiety that we normally experience under pressure and provides cheerfulness and courage for the depression that normally comes. And Jesus says we can take courage because I have overcome the world. In other words, the world supplies an endless source of tribulation, but you can be cheerful because I have overcome the world. The peace and the courage that you find in me is greater than the pressure and the stress that you encounter in the world. No matter how devastating, no matter how debilitating, no matter how disabling the pressure is, I, Jesus says, have overcome the world. And I would suggest that that's what Jesus is doing in this last half of chapter 16 is he's showing us how in me there is a basis for peace and for courage and tribulation. It tells us how we can tap into the peace of the rock here. Now let's go back and work through this section by section beginning in verse 16 and see what these principles are that Jesus wants to impart to us that give us poise and hope under pressure. Jesus begins in verse 16, A little while, and you will no longer behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Now we know what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about his death and resurrection. A little while, he says, and you will no longer behold me. That is, I will be dead and buried. Then he says, again a little while, that is a scant three days later, you will see me referring to his resurrection. Now that's clear to us with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, but you must realize this was very confusing to the disciples. They didn't know what he was talking about. Did he mean he was going away for the weekend? He was going undercover for a couple of weeks until the storm blew over? What was he up to? And so they fell among themselves to discussing this and trying to figure it out in verse 17. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us, a little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me, 
and because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. I've always wanted, by the way, to be able to say that I teach like Jesus does. And I finally can say that, because when I teach, many people say, we do not know what he is talking about. (laughs) So, take great comfort in this uh, passage. Now remember, this was on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, making their way through the streets of Jerusalem and out the city gates. They were having this conversation. Uh, They had passed through some vineyard, probably, in John 15. And now as they're making their way over to the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples have this discussion among themselves, having really what amounts to the world's first inductive Bible study, taking a statement of Jesus and trying to figure it out, the same thing that we do in our growth groups week after week. Now, Jesus uh, evidently overheard snatches of this conversation, but he allowed the discussion to progress. It was generating more heat than light, and so eventually Jesus, in verse 19, breaks in. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So he says to these disciples in answer to their puzzlement, and by the way, they probably were afraid to ask Jesus to clarify himself for the same reason that we are silent in class and we don't understand what the teacher is talking about. We think that we probably should Probably everybody else in the class does. So instead of raising our hand and exposing our ignorance, we'll simply nudge the guy next to us and ask him to explain it. And, of course, that doesn't work any better for us than it did for the disciples. And eventually you have to get around to listening to the teacher anyway. So Jesus did them a favor of breaking in. And what he says to them is that you are puzzled, and all he says to them is that you will weep and lament. Again, he hasn't yet told them why, but he says the day will come when you will weep and lament and be sorrowful. And again, we understand that this is uh, a reference to, the, to his death and the cross. It says to the disciples, when I go to the cross, you will experience sorrow and grief. And they did. Not only did they lose the one that they had come to regard as their best friend, but they lost the one that they had come to recognize as their Savior, the one on whom they had pinned all of their hopes, uh, the one that they had forsaken everything to follow, and he was taken from them. And they experienced uh, mourning and sorrow. And I think this is the first lesson that Jesus wants us to understand from this passage in times of pressure. That is that we can expect life to be hard and difficult. And we can expect it to hurt. And I think naively we tend to regard the times of pressure in life as exceptions to the norm or exceptions to the rule. And we're always waiting for life to get back to normal. You ever notice that? You know, summer is so busy and we think, oh boy, I can't wait till fall gets here and we kind of settle into this routine. And then fall comes and it's busier than the summer was. And we say, boy, I just can't wait till we get through this fall season and get into the winter where we can kind of settle down. Same thing happens in the winter. We keep waiting for life to kind of settle down and mellow out. But Jesus says it never will. In the world you have tribulation. And furthermore, Jesus indicates that Christians are not excused from any of the pressure or the pain that non-Christians experience. Uh, Christians uh, get divorced. Christians go bankrupt. Uh, Christians have children that go bad. Christians have uh, children that die in uh, youth. 
Same pressures that non-Christians experience, the Christian likewise experiences. And furthermore, Christians are not impervious to the pain that these things uh, produce. That faith is not some kind of a celestial insulation that keeps us from feeling the agony of these uh, depressing uh, situations. That's why Jesus says you will weep and you will lament and you will be sorrowful. We can count on it. David was, uh, Roper was telling the staff this week that uh, he's up in Portland this weekend, performed a marriage for his middle son Brian yesterday. And Brian was on the phone to uh, Carolyn a week or so ago. And uh, Brian said to uh, his mom, he said, Mom, are you going to cry at my wedding? And uh, she said, no, I don't think so. And he said, well, is Dad going to cry at my wedding? <laughs> and she said, well, no, I don't think so. Uh, but we'll be glad to hire a couple of professional mourners if it would make you <laughs> feel any better. Okay? Well, the point that Jesus makes here is we don't need any help with this mourning. We'll have plenty of it to offer ourselves that we will weep and lament and have sorrow, just as the non-Christian world does. By the way, that's a good illustration, and David will probably use that sometime. So when he uses it, laugh and pretend you heard it for the first time. <laughs> and uh, don't, don't tell him that I swiped it from him. Okay? Now, there's another feature of the disciples' experience here that I want to draw your attention to, and that is that they... The reason for their sorrow and their lament was that the sense of separation from the Lord, uh, the, the sense of His loss and His distance. And that's another thing that we as believers often experience in times of stress is it seems that the Lord is aloof and distant and uninterested and uninvolved and unresponsive to my pleas for uh, help. seems distant and removed. And Jesus, I think, wants us to be aware that that is, that is part of life, that we will experience those times when that will be our portion as well. So the first principle and the first lesson out of this is to be realistically prepared for these times of difficulty and sorrow and even distance from the Lord. Now Jesus goes on then in verse, the second half of verse 20 on through verse 23 to give us a second great truth. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. And in that day, you will ask me no question. Now again, we understand what Jesus is referring to here, although the disciples did not, that it was his resurrection that would turn their sorrow to joy. When they encountered him on that first resurrection Sunday, saw that he was alive from the dead, their sorrow at, and their loss was turned to joy. And Jesus says it's a joy that no one will take away from you. And we see that in their subsequent lives, that every one of these apostles, without exception, went uh, willfully and voluntarily and cheerfully to a, to a martyr's death. They had found a joy in Christ and His resurrection that no one could take away. Also, Jesus says, In that day you will ask me no question. That is, uh, all of these puzzling things that I've said to you will become clear. And you'll understand all that I've been saying to you. And you will understand the things that I have been doing and the way God has been working and what His purposes are in this event. Now, I think that's the second great lesson that Jesus wants us to learn 
to, to handle times of pressure is that God is a specialist at turning sorrow to joy. That this is his best thing. This is his uh, long suit. This is what he is particularly good at, is turning our sorrow into joy. I want you to notice a little grammatical thing here that I think is intriguing in verse 20. Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Notice it's turned to joy, not replaced by joy, but turned to joy. As if Jesus is saying, the very thing that has produced the sorrow and the pain is the very thing that you will come to see as the greatest source of joy in your life. I was touched uh, last week by the testimony of the single mother that shared that through her experience of divorce and even losing custody of her daughter, that God had brought her into a, a relationship with himself that she had never known before. She'd begun to understand some of the depths of his grace and his riches and his love for her. And so she could stand before us and honestly thank God for the joy in her life that had come out of that very sorrowful experience. I, uh, and Jesus uses the illustration of childbirth here, which is a very telling uh, illustration. Uh, a woman in labor is in agony and, uh, and pain. Well, what is causing that pain? Well, it's a little baby is producing all of that pain. And then when the child is born and she cuddles that newborn to her cheek and her face is radiant with the joy of motherhood, what is producing that joy? Well, a little baby. The same baby that produced the pain is producing the joy. And what enables her to go through the pain is the prospect of the joy to follow. A magazine article I read recently uh, explained this, I thought, very well, better than I can. The writer says, there's one ward in a hospital where moans are most likely to assault your ears. Young women writhe in severe pain, but the doctors resist giving them sedatives. The problem is obvious to the eye. These women are suffering from gigantic growths that have swelled their stomachs to the size of beach balls. Their taut skin glistens. As the hours pass, the women's faces grow increasingly worn with pain. If they were there with any other diagnosis, say cancer, the scene would cut your heart. Instead, you may feel great joy in a maternity ward. The view from the end is a baby. Because they know this, the women rarely despair in their pain. They may feel as much pain as a woman in the same hospital with stomach cancer, but they look confidently toward the end, a joyful end. Later, they will not be able even to remember how the process felt. Obviously written by a man here. Uh, a mother may say, Isn't it strange how you can't remember how much it hurt? The pain that seems so terrible simply fades away, especially because it came to its proper end. She holds her baby. Now that's what the Lord is saying to us here, that God is a specialist at turning sorrow to joy. Now, how did he do that for the disciples? Well, Jesus tells us, he says, I will see you again. That it was seeing the Lord again that replaced or turned their sorrow into joy. Now, that, I believe, is what does it for the believer in our time as well. It's getting a new glimpse of the Lord, seeing a new facet of his character, a new dimensions of his grace, and a new insight into his love for us and his provision for us and growing into a deeper, intimate, personal relationship with Him that provides the joy and the satisfaction. It's not necessarily due to a change in circumstances. Now, in many cases, the Lord may turn our sorrow to joy in part by answering our prayer for our circumstances. He may 
keep us from going bankrupt. He may save our marriage. He may spare the life of our child. But that's not the basic source of the believer's joy. It's a new insight and knowledge and vision of Jesus himself that produces joy. I came across not long ago a passage in a writing by Dr. R.A. Torrey. He was a great Bible teacher of a previous generation, the founder of Biola College. And he and his wife lost their daughter when she was 12. And even the funeral itself was conducted on a very gray and gloomy, rainy, miserable day. And the following day, he remembers walking through uh, the streets of his hometown and was just suddenly overwhelmed again with the sense of loss and heartache and the, the empty house where her laughter used to ring and the years ahead of desolation. And in that overwhelming loneliness, he turned uh, to the Lord. And uh, he writes in his journal, Just then... This fountain, the Holy Spirit that I had in my heart, broke forth with such power as I think I had never experienced before, and it was the most joyful moment I had ever known in my life. Oh, how wonderful is the joy of the Holy Ghost! It is an unspeakably glorious thing to have your joy not in things about you, not even in your most dearly loved friends, but to have within you a fountain ever springing up, springing up, springing up, always springing up, 365 days in every year, springing up under all circumstances unto everlasting life. Not a sorrow to joy. Now Jesus also tells the disciples that in that day you will ask no question. That is, you will understand what I've been up to and what I've been saying. And that's a, a second reason why our the, uh, sorrow can be turned to joy, a second way in which the Lord turns our sorrow to joy is by giving us some understanding of the way in which He is working, something of His purpose that He's had in mind in taking us through these times of pressure and stress. I read an article just uh, last week, as a matter of fact, written by a mother of three children. She and her husband had waited till fairly late in life to have their first child, and of course they awaited the birth of this child with eager anticipation, and she remembers singing the Bill Gaither song, When Jesus brought you to us, we loved you from the start. You were just a bit of sunshine from heaven to our hearts. Not just another baby, because since the world began, he had a special purpose for you and his plan. That's why he made you special. You're the only one of your kind. Well, that baby that she had had sung about so gloriously, uh, was born, and they discovered subsequently that the child was autistic. Uh, autism is a severe form of mental retardation in which a child is encapsulated in a world of uh, his own, rarely ever has any kind of contact with the outside world and those around him. This was the child that they had waited for for so long. And she remembers the uh, lament and the sorrow that accompanied the birth of that child. She took comfort from Psalm 139 as she sought to cope with her, uh, her understandable grief and uh, discovered there that God had shaped the, her little boy in uh, her womb, that this was no accident, that it was a part of God's plan. She felt an understandable sense of guilt that perhaps, possibly it was something she had done that was responsible for this. She found great comfort in John 9 where Jesus said about the man who was born blind from birth, it was neither that this man sinned nor that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And she began to realize that that's why David was born autistic, 
that the works of God might be displayed in him. And in the article, she goes on to describe the things that God had taught her and taught her family that he could not have taught them in any other way but through this child. And she listed some of the lessons that God had, had taught them. Uh, for one, uh, when David was three, uh, he would go into these severe temper tantrums would last up to 20 minutes, five or six times a day without any kind of warning, and just as unpredictably they would, would stop. And occasionally these temp- temper tantrums would come when she was in a public place, like a, a, a supermarket. And she learned some tremendous lessons, grew in, in knowing what it means to love your child and be unconcerned about what the rest of the world thinks about you and about your children. She also learned what it means to be valuable in God's sight. She was an achievement-oriented person. Uh, her greatest sense of a, uh, achievement and well-being came from crossing off her to-do list at the end of the day. But she discovered that, in David's case, that what made you valuable is not what you were able to do because this child could not do anything, but what God is able to do through you. And measured in that standard, David was a very valuable child. And she and her husband learned some great lessons about what it means to love when your love is not returned. Autistic child cannot return your affection. You can give them all the love and the hugs and the kisses that you want, and it'll never be returned. And they learn what it means to love and to give yourself without receiving anything in return. And so they grew much as parents matured in their faith, became more righteous. And then the day came, she says, when the children, her other two children, younger children, came to her. And they had always raised David as a normal child, never treated him in any special way. It's part of their philosophy of raising him. And one day, her two younger children came and said, Mommy, we noticed that David is bigger than we are, but he still can't talk. Why? And she offered a prayer at that point. This is the question she dreaded. And asked God to give her the words to explain to her children. And this is what she said. I don't know why David can't talk or why he is the way he is. No one really knows except God. God knew all along, and when he was making families, he thought to himself, David will need a lot of special love. I wonder which family should I give him to? How about Johnny and Sarah's? They are a great family. Michael and Christy both shook their heads with concern. No, don't send David there. Well, how about Catherine and Billy's family? They have lots of nice toys. Again, they would not hear of it. Then, I said, God looked and saw your daddy and mommy, and he saw little Christy and little Michael, and he asked himself, if I send David to them, I wonder, would he get the kind of love that he needs there? My two children opened their eyes wide and began jumping up and down as if they had won a prize and screamed, yes, give him to us. Excuse me. I knew that God had answered my prayer because they too saw him as a special gift from God. So here's a child that probably 90% of our country would suggest a mother abort and yet became a great source of joy to the entire family, learning lessons, experiencing visions of God's grace that they never could have learned in any other way. And that's, God's, that's Jesus' point here, that God is a specialist at turning sorrow to joy. Now, what do we do in the meantime? What if we're in the sorrow and lament stage and our sorrow has not yet been replaced by joy? Well, Jesus tells us what to do, I believe, starting in the middle of verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. They didn't know any better, didn't know enough to do that. 
Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. By that, he means that there's their language which is hard to understand. The expressions about a little while this and a little while that. That's figurative language. Hard to understand is the point. An hour is coming, that is, after the resurrection, when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. That's the day in which their questions would be answered. We've talked about that. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father in your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Now I think the third lesson in this is that what God intends for us to do when we're in circumstances of sorrow and lament is to pray, is to ask the Father in the name of Jesus. The verb tense uh, of the verb ask in verse 24 is the present tense. It means it's ongoing. It's something that you do steadily and quietly and consistently and patiently. Day in and day out, week in and week out, you ask the Father for what you need in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will grant. Therefore, it's important that we understand what it means to pray in the name of Jesus now, it's obviously not just some kind of a tagline that you can add on to the end of a prayer and kind of sanctify it or baptize it. Remember when my daughter was learning to pray, uh, she, no matter what circumstance it was in, bedtime, morning, she always started every prayer, Father, thank you for this food. She thought that's how you introduced prayer because that's how she learned. Well, praying in the name of Jesus is not like that. It's not just some kind of formula that we can tack on to the end of prayer that kind of sanctifies everything that we've said before. It's only the prayers offered in His name that He grants. Now, the first thing, I think, is realizing to pray in Jesus' name means that the only reason we have access to the Father is because we are connected to Jesus, that He is our entree. He is our calling card. Uh, We say to God, uh, Jesus told me to tell you that that He sent me. David uh, used the illustration a few uh, weeks ago of uh, a man who... Uh, is in heaven, and his friends ask him, what are you doing here? And he points to Jesus and says, I'm with him. Now, that's the way we can come to God. When God says, or someone says, what are you doing here asking God for these things? All we need to say is, I'm with him. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Now, the second thing it means to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in line with his objectives and his purposes. Now, we know what his goal in life is. His goal is to conform us to the image of Christ. So to pray in Jesus' name in a time of stress means to ask God to use this circumstance to conform us to the image of Jesus, to make us more Christ-like, to give us whatever elements of character we need to be sustained under this time of pressure, to give us the love that we need, to give us the joy that we need, the patience, the perseverance, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control, the steadiness that we need to negotiate this time of pressure. And Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, my Father will grant, and he will grant to you willingly. Now that has to do with items and terms of of pressure that we ourselves control, where it's our character and our behavior that is at issue. And this means in a married situation, for instance, if you have a a mate that is not responding to you, that... uh, 
what a prayer offered in Jesus' name will grant you what you need to find your own needs wholly met in Christ and to be able to continue to serve and give yourself and minister to your mate as unresponsive as he or she may be. And then there are prayers that we offer in times of stress that depend on the actions of other people. Now, to pray in Jesus' name with respect to those requests means to pray like Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, we may ask God to save our marriage or to preserve us from financial ruin. But because these things often depend upon the actions of other people, we must pray. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And if we do this, then God will sustain us through this time of pressure. And this is how our sorrow will be turned to joy. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. That's the whole point of asking and receiving that your joy, that's the connection, may be made full. So this is how sorrow is turned to joy, by patient and steady and consistent prayer and dependence upon the Lord. Now verse 26 at first appears to be a little confusing. Jesus says, I do not say that I will request the Father on your behalf. Sounds a little bit cold at first glance, but verse 27 explains it. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you pray in my name, that gives you access to the Father. That's the password that gives you access to him. And then when you offer your requests for whatever you need, it's not as if I have to talk the Father into answering your prayers. I don't have to plead with him or intercede for you to get him to do what you want. And the reason is I don't need to because he himself loves you. And why does the Father love you? Because you love me. Now the Heavenly Father is just like a good earthly father in this respect. He loves those who love his children. Those who love his child have a special place in his heart. Uh, one of the uh, daughters of... Uh, one of our other staff members was uh, involved in a fundraising activity for the school that she uh, goes to. And uh, she, this girl happens to be a good friend of my daughter, one of her best friends. And uh, one day I was in my office and these little tiny knuckles knocked on the door to my office. And I opened it and there was this little doe-eyed waif standing in the doorway to my office. Her father, by the way, nowhere to be seen. It was a real setup here, I'm telling you. And... Um, she asked me if I would be interested in buying a candle to help out in this fundraising thing. Now, what am I going to say? Of course I'm going to do that. This little girl is one of my daughter's best friends. I would be delighted to do that without any problem, no reservation. Now, Jesus says that's what the Heavenly Father is like. He's not somebody that has to be sort of cajoled into doling out these gifts because he delights to do it because he sees that we love his Son, and that gives us a special place in his heart. So that's the third great lesson that Jesus wants us to understand, that God sustains us in a time of sorrow through prayer, and it's through prayer that he does this transformation of turning sorrow into joy. Now then the discussion closes, starting in verse 28. Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Now they had puzzled about that before, remember? I, what does he mean when he says, I am going to the Father? And all Jesus does is repeat it. So they were as much in a fog at this point as they were before. But they want Jesus to feel encouraged. You know, every teacher wants to know that his pupils have some understanding of what he's talking about. So they say in verse 29, his disciples said, Lo, you know anybody talks like that? 
Lo, lo, let's watch a little Cosby. Nobody talks like that. These disciples, I love them. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. We know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. Remember Jesus said, Day is coming when you won't have to ask me questions. And the disciples want to encourage Jesus, saying, We get the point, that day has come. Uh, by this we believe that you come from God. But Jesus knows better in verse 21. He says with, I think, a note of wistful tenderness in his voice, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I am not alone because the Father is with me. And that's the fourth great lesson I think Jesus wants us to remember in times of stress. That the people that we may count on to help us and to see us through these times may abandon us right when we need them the most. The very people that we counted on to be our strength may leave us uh, in, in those times. But we are not truly alone because the Father is with us to stand by us and to help us, to strengthen us and to support us and to turn our sorrow into joy. What Jesus is getting across, I think, is aptly expressed in this poem. And with this, I'll close my thoughts. Have you come to the Red Sea place in your life where in spite of all you can do, there is no way out, there is no way back, there is no other way but through? Then wait on the Lord with a trust serene till the night of your fear is gone. He will send the wind, He will heap the floods when He says to your soul, Go on. And his hand will lead you through, clear through, ere the watery walls roll down. No foe can reach you, no wave can touch, no mightiest sea can drown. The tossing billows may rear their crests, their foam at your feet may break. But over their bed you shall walk dry shod in the path that your Lord will make. In the morning watch neath the lifted cloud you shall see but the Lord alone. When he leads you on from the place of the sea to a land that you have not known. And your fears shall pass as your foes have passed. You shall no more be afraid. You shall sing his praise in a better place, a place that his hand has made.